part of being a researcher is just learning by doing. You can take academic classes, but then to actually learn how to do research. pleasure of interviewing Petra Todd. Petra Todd is the Edlin J. and Louise W. Kahn Term Professor of Economics at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the Research Associate of Penn's Population Studies Center, an Associate Editor for the American Economic Review, as well as the journal Human Capital, and a prominent contributor to the fields of econometric theory, program evaluation, labor, and development economics. She's published many classics in economics, more than I can list right now. These include tests for racial discrimination in motor vehicle searches, uh, the, the underlying identification assumptions uh, for the regression discontinuity design to a longstanding analysis of one of the first and largest conditional cash transfers in a developing country, uh, Progressa. Today, we talked about what drew her to economics and econometrics, the impact that her advisor, Jim Heckman, had on her career, and her thoughts and opinions about the value of structural approaches to empirical questions and how that can improve and amplify what we learn from our empirical studies. My name is Scott Cunningham, and this is the Mixtape Podcast. Okay, well, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Petra Todd, uh, it is a pleasure to have you here on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, could you Thank tell you for inviting me? <laughs> could you tell the 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 listeners and the viewers, um, uh, you know, your name and where you work and uh, anything about yourself that they that they might not know? Okay, um, yeah, I'm a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I have been there. I don't know. That's been my first job, so I've been there since 1996. Um, I'm a my research is in the area of labor economics, econometrics, and development economics, kind of the, those three areas. Great. Okay, cool. All right. So I have a, a, an icebreaker exercise. I uh, wanted to do a, a, a word uh, phrase kind of association. I'm going to say some words and phrases. And I want you to tell me uh, this is like Rorschach test. You know, what, what do you, what do you think when I say these things? Okay. So what do you think when I say the word econometrics? Um, matrix algebra. <laughs> <laughs> matrix algebra. Okay. What about when I say University of Chicago? Um, uh, University of Chicago. Um, I don't know. I have more pictures in my mind. I mean, I have very positive association with with my alma mater. Yeah. Um, like kind of ivory tower. Yeah. It's, but. The University of Chicago. I, I think it's one of the premier institutions. So. Um, okay. Jim Heckman. I'm advisor. Advisor. <laughs> Uh, Don Rubin. Um, I actually, I don't know him. I, I think I, I only went and saw him give a talk once, but um, statistics. I mean, he's a statistician. Yeah. Okay. Causal inference. 
Um, treatment effects. Okay. And uh, the tango. The tango. <laughs> <laughs> I work on that a lot. Um, uh, staccato. Okay. All right. Great. Okay, so uh, that's great. So um, I see, I wanna tell you my priors about you uh, as, as a scholar and I wanna, and, and maybe in this talk, uh, you know, you, you can help me have, you can help me update. So I wrote this out. I, I consider you to be the Dean of the Structural School of Econometrics. That's, that's what I, I, I have in my mind. You're the Dean of the structural school. Uh, you're sort of the, the head of it. You have sort of this, uh, this uh, uh, kind of your, your, you and, and some other of your colleagues have done so much to kind of approach certain questions in this what's broadly called structural. So, but at the same time, when I say it, um, I, I have trouble with that because you have so many seminal works that I always associated with this reduced form. So like your work with Jeff Smith on matching, uh, difference and differences with Heckman and Nikamura, your work with Hahn and Vanderklaw on regression discontinuity design, uh, this Progressa major conditional cash transfer program. So I can't really understand uh, how it all fits together uh, when, it, when I come to you because some, some authors kind of sort into one thing or another, and they're so closely associated with school and, and you aren't. And so, um, so I was wondering if today, as we're talking, you can kind of know that one of my, I hope that we can figure out, or I hope that you can help me figure out, is this whole structural versus reduced form discussion. I don't really understand it philosophically, what makes it distinct and where the comparative advantages are of one or another. And if it's even helpful to talk in terms of whether one is true or not true and why one has been more successfully adopted or more widespreadly adopted by, you know, non-econometricians than others. And so that's why I was hoping, you know, I feel like you're, you, you have this, this, this bird's eye view that I hope that we can, can talk about that. So that's kind of what I wanted to tell you that, to set you up where I'm thinking, but before we get into it, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your past. So I was wondering, could you tell me where you grew up and uh, what what did you like doing as a kid? Well, I actually, <laughs> where I grew up is not such an easy question because my dad was in the military and I lived in a lot of different places. So he, he was in the army. Um, so I was born in Maryland, but I think when I was three and four years old, my dad had to go to Vietnam and my mother is German. So she took us to Germany. So then I lived in, in Bayreuth, which is like the city where Wagner, Richard, Richard Wagner is from. Um, so I lived there for a couple of years and I think I started learning German before English mm -hmm. even, but then when my dad came back from Vietnam, we relocated to Virginia yeah well actually you know what we, we lived in california at some point i think when i was two-year-old we i was born in maryland then we lived in california then we went to germany then we came back to virginia then i lived there for a couple of years um and then i kind of you know 
spoken English because uh, I think my nobody can understand me when I started elementary school. And so um, then my mom started talking English to me. Then we went back to Germany and um, and my dad was just located there and we lived in Heidelberg and Karlsruhe. Um, and then we came back to the US, back to Virginia. So I went to high school in Virginia. So, but I actually went to five different elementary schools. <laughs> yeah. Was that a different, was it difficult making all those transitions like that at such a, you know, formative age socially? It was difficult because, um, I mean, I remember it was hard for me to get rid of all my toys <laughs> when uh, I was yeah. five or six years old. I had just gotten these toys for Christmas that I really liked. And all of a sudden they were at our yard sale and I didn't oh. really want to sell them. Um, but yeah, I think it's difficult. But at the same time, it's really interesting because I got to travel a lot and, mm. you know, I still have relatives in Germany. So I got to hang out with my cousins. Um, so I think it has pluses and minuses. Are you fluent in German now? Um, I mean, I can fluently understand German, but I don't speak it that often. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not fluent like a German person would be. Yeah. But, what were you interested in in high school? And this was in Virginia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In what, high school? Yeah, what was your interest in high school? Um, I was very academically oriented. Uh, I always liked math and computer science. I actually took a lot of comp sci. Mm. I was like on the, I was the only female on the computer team. In oh, yeah. School. But I also liked foreign languages a lot. So mm. I took like two languages in high school and um, I, I had a very, I went to a very good high school. Mm. You know, so it gave me a good foundation. Well, I follow you on Facebook and over the last uh, several years, uh, I just have deduced you, you love to dance a lot and that you, but it's not like, um, it, it, it's, it's not the way that a lot of young people like to dance. It, it, it almost seems like competitive dancing. Is that accurate? It is. Yeah. I compete in ballroom dancing. Actually okay. last, last Friday I was competing in Atlantic city um, and I do I've done a few, there, there are four styles of dancing. Um, huh. So lately I've been doing standard dancing, which is what they do. In Europe, they only have two styles of dancing, but standard dancing would be waltz, tango, foxtrot, Viennese waltz, and quick step. Uh-huh. So I, I even danced, I took a lot of ballet, like 12 years of ballet as a child. Uh -huh. So I, I loved dancing even when I was young and you know, ballet is hard to do as an adult, I think, but ballroom dancing is something that, you know, it's very good exercise. It's actually very enjoyable. It's mm. a little bit expensive, I would say, as a hobby because you have to buy all these dresses and oh. pay for lessons. Yeah. Uh, how, how, so how long? So you've loved, you, you would say you love dancing? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like my other job. <laughs> really? Well, why, why do you love it so much? What do you love about it? Um, well, I think it uses a different part of the brain, you know, because if, if you're sitting all the time and working on referee reports and things like that, um, it's just very sedentary activity and, and then dancing, you know, it's all spatial and it, it's very, it's pretty difficult to actually, I mean, I've, I've now competing gold level, which is the highest level and um, it's not easy at all, but it uses different skills. I mean, actually, um, Albert Einstein was a ballroom dancer. Really? Oh, yeah, really? there. 
there are a lot of people that like dancing. Was he good? I don't know. <laughs> I would have liked to know, but they have these quotes that he, he said about dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you were you was was there a point in your life where you decided to make dancing something that you were going to invest more in that? Well, you- at first I was traveling a lot to South America. And so I went to some of the, the salsa clubs there right. just while I was traveling and everybody looked like they were having the best time. And so I just wanted to learn salsa, yeah. you know, and I signed up for these dance classes and they said, well, you can't just learn salsa. You have to kind of learn all these different styles and then I discovered I really liked it wow that's cool at first I did it with my husband but I tend to go overboard on my hobbies sometimes yeah totally (laughs) so so it's more it was too much for him so I actually compete with a different pro dancer Uh, who's Russian yeah so what every week you're meeting with him like a couple of days a week or something for several yeah yeah practice yeah you always have just like this year we're going to compete in x and X events and we you sort of have a strategy for the year about what your goals are yeah they have competitions all over the U.S. also in Canada uh-huh. so you there's a website like NDCA National Dance Association that's um and you can see what cities are running competitions all year long uh-huh what would you like to accomplish this year um well, I mean, my main goal is just to improve, like continually improve. And um, I mean, of course, if you go to competition, you want to win. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it is actually for money, but, yeah. it, you know, like you can win $200 or something. If you, um, but usually it's just trying, trying to win, trying to do your best, you know, but it's not it's more of a personal, just that you want to improve. And sometimes we do little shows. Yeah. 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 Well, how did you get into economics in the first place? Well, uh, my dad was an operations research analyst in the military, and that's kind of close actually to economics in terms. So he took economics and he suggested that I would like it. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, because in high school, we didn't have any economics classes, but that's why I started taking econ. Um, I mean, I also, one of my friends, her dad was an economist and he was the assistant secretary of the interior. Uh-huh. And I was always very impressed with, you know, because um, I went to his office. And so it just seemed to me something that was good, a good field, you know, if you want to be successful just from the people I knew. And my dad encouraged me. And I didn't actually like it that much as an undergrad because I think it can be a little bit dry, you know. Yeah. The, where um, where did you go undergrad? I went to UVA. You went to Virginia, okay. And it was you found it a little bit dry, okay. Yeah, just the the initial classes I wasn't super excited about, but then when I started taking statistics and econometrics, I really loved those classes. Mm. And then it also seemed like I had a lot of aptitude for doing economics, mm. you know. And and I also liked. If I hadn't done economics, I probably would have done computer science. Mm. I really liked like computer science too. How, how could you tell the, what? So what would you say to your young self? Oh, you have aptitude, and here's the evidence for that aptitude. What 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 would you have pointed out to them? Well, I mean, I just didn't require that much effort. You know, I could do really well in the classes without having to work super hard. Like it wasn't a struggle. 
mm. for me. And I got kind of excited about the material. Right. I mean, I was super excited when I took my first mathematical statistics course. You know, that was yeah. one of my favorite courses as an uh -huh. undergrad. Yeah. yeah. So what, like you would, so the experiences you're describing, are we, are we talking about problem sets, intermediate micro? micro yeah. And exams and problem sets. Problem and, sets and, and I did a nice research paper as an undergrad with Stephen Stern. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And we eventually got that published. Um, so it, I just, I liked it. And then when I went to grad school, I actually liked it more, you know, cause I thought that was very exciting. But even in grad school, you know, I started off thinking I wanted to do macro and finance. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But then after I took the courses, I realized I was better in micro and econometrics. But I you bet know. you, I bet you a lot, it seems like a lot of people can sort out of macro because it's like really hard, you know, to, but, but I bet you, I'm curious what, what, what was it that made you sort out? Because you could, you had the competency to do really anything. So what was it you liked? What was it you didn't like as much about macro and did find this draw to micro? Well, I think it's more concrete, you know, that you can just imagine individuals making decisions, you know, about schooling, about marriage, about fertility. It's something that's very concrete the way you model it. Whereas yeah. the macro, it just seemed to be more disagreements about how you model things and, mm. and the, the objects, you know, GDP or whatever. It's not quite as concrete in terms right. of, so it, but I just found the classes were easier. Like when I took Gary Becker's class, you know, yeah. I got very excited. So I sort of always went in the area where I felt I had more aptitude. Yeah. Yeah. And then like? actually Jim Hackman wasn't there my first year. Uh -huh. um, so I had him the second year. I think he was visiting Yale and, and I got very excited when I took his class. Like he was teaching a class in discrete choice analysis. Uh-huh. Um, so then I realized like, I really like this person and I want to work with this person. Wow. What, what was the bear? What was it like? Um, what were your expectations like uh, when you were going to Chicago and, and, and how did that, how did that like, what changed about you? Uh, uh, what, what was sort of the, what was that journey like for you over that whole period of time? Actually, when I went to Chicago, I was kind of clueless, I would say, because my my undergrad advisors did not really tell me about the core exam. You know, like Chicago at that time was failing about half the people yeah. after the first year exams. So it was a super tough place, you know, and I think everybody wanted me to go there but they didn't want to scare me because if right. they would tell me the truth about it, that it was actually not easy at all, you know, so I went there and I didn't really know how hard it was. And then of course I quickly found out that they have these exams and about half the people are failing them. And yeah. so it was a pretty brutal environment to yeah. be honest, because it was the first time I was far from home Mm. You know, because my parents were in Virginia and all of a sudden living in south side of Chicago, mm. you know, it was not easy at all. And then the weather was brutally cold <laughs> when I right. was there. Right. And then the classes were really tough. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of boot camp. 
to go there. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to Jeff Smith, your old classmate this, this week. And, and we were talking about the mental health amongst PhD students. And he had said he had seen a study uh, and the mental health amongst the Chicago PhD students was better than the others in the, um, the, in the survey. And he said that, he thought it was because, and he was sort of joking, but I kind of got the sense he was half joking. Like he said uh, that it was because at econ, we just take so much pride in Chicago, at Chicago, we take so much pride in loving economics. I was wondering what you thought when you hear him say something like, with an anecdote like that. Does that no, sound? That's, that's true. I mean, People really worshipped economics and the economics department was held just in the highest regard, you know, and so many Nobel Prize winners. And I think everybody was very proud to be associated with that department for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and the people are super intense. You know, everybody's very strongly devoted to their research. And right. I mean, and even though the work was hard and, you know, you work a lot of hours, but I got the feeling that my advisor was working always twice as hard as me, you know, yeah. <laughs> Jim Heckman works right. incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I never felt that I could complain because, you know, he was working the hardest of all. So. Right. Right. Well, tell me about that relationship. It, it, it how did you and Professor Heckman uh, first um, uh, decide to have a working relationship? He, uh, he invited me to be his RA. Okay. Um, but I think it was because I had taken some classes with him and gotten good grades in them. Mm. And also, I think maybe Chris Tabor recommended me because Chris started working for him first. Uh -huh. um, and he was one of my friends. Yeah, but I yeah. think it was on the basis of just getting good grades in his classes. He invited yeah. me to join some projects. Well, and that was a big turnaround for me because, you know, I felt like suddenly I had, because part of being a researcher is just learning by doing. You yeah. know, you can take academic classes, but then to actually learn how to do research, I mm. think you need to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Mm. And you worked one-on-one -on -one with, with Dr. Heckman? Yeah, a lot. We used to we just meet almost every day, you know, go over results. And we wrote a lot of papers together while I was in grad school. Mm. Yeah. What, what do you think is the lasting legacy of that relationship for you? How are you, how, how, if you had to imagine a counterfactual that with the best of your imagination, what, what do you think is permanently different about the kind of person you are uh, as a result of that relationship? Oh, I mean, I, I think my whole career probably would have been different if, if I hadn't worked with him. Like he was so supportive and I felt like I learned so much from him. I mean, he made everybody work hard. Yeah. You know, it wasn't easy at all. Um, but then there was a huge payoff to it. You know, I got a lot of publications out of that research and um, I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder, you know, how, how my career would have been without working with him. Mm. You know, because Chicago, some of the faculty were not that accessible, you mm. know, because they had so many famous faculty. Sometimes I would make an appointment and then they'd give me an appointment like, you know, to see a professor in two weeks. And then when it got close to the date, they would cancel and reschedule. 
like as a grad student, it can be hard sometimes if you don't even have access to the faculty. It's hard to meet with them. Yeah. Um, and at that time, they didn't have any student offices. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like you saw people casually in the hallway. Yeah. You know, so yeah. as soon as I worked with him, he got offices for us and and I saw him every day, you know, so right. I would say it's the ideal relationship for a grad student, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh, I want to show you something. Uh, let me find it. It's by Shockley. Um, I want to show you this real quick. So I'm going to share my screen. Uh, okay. Shockley, Shockley won the... Uh, uh, Nobel Prize in Physics. He ran Bell Labs. And so this is a paper he wrote on the statistics of individual variations of productivity in research labs. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, he's kind of really interested in these kind of right tail, uh, right tail uh, scientific output. Um, so like just large site people, but he has this really interesting production function here. And um, I wanted to ask you about it. So he says, uh, to some approximation, the probability that a worker will produce a paper in a given period of time will be the product of a set of factors, F1, F2, related to the personal attributes discussed above. And here's the attributes. Partial listing, not in order of importance, might be one, ability to think of a good problem, two, ability to work on it, three, ability to recognize a worthwhile result, four, ability to make a decision as to when to stop and write up the results, five, ability to write adequately, six, ability to profit constructively from criticism, seven, determination to submit the paper to a journal, eight, persistence. Okay, and you know, then he kind of discusses it, but this production function is interesting to me because it's multiplicative. I thought uh -huh. that was interesting because if it's additive, then, you know, you could just be good at seven of them and be really, you know, right. potentially successful, yeah. uh, but it's multiplicative. So uh, you have to be good at all of them, or at least the team does. And, you know, yeah. and so I was kind of wondering, you know, I, I see you as uh, like Shockley, this, this uh, high, high, right, you know, elite level economist. And I was curious what exactly is your production function? What are the non-cognitive skills that you have that, that if in your mind really are responsible for that, you know, that might not be, you know, that, that what, what of it, first of all, is what, what do you think is in, for you, the, the few things that a person has to have and, and what are, you know, like that are kind of general like this. And then what are yours and, when did you figure it out? Well, I mean, first, I totally agree with him, you know, that these are the characteristics. And, and if you if you don't do one of them, it kind of falls apart. You know, yeah. like, it, it, let's say you get criticism in terms of referee reports. And then, you know, you could get angry and just put your paper in the drawer and not work on it anymore. Right? Like, right. Um, so it's totally multiplicative that you have to be able to do all these things. Um, I would say like, I like to work on projects independently. I mean, even as a child, I used to have these little projects that I would do and I'd work all summer, you know, on doing something that I was interested in. 
And I always think of being an economics professor and doing, re you know, more research focused is kind of like being self-employed. Yeah. And a little bit more like being an artist, yeah. you know, because your paper is your creation. You know, you right. have this data set and, and you have to decide what you're going to do with these data and what you're going to present about these data. And I actually, I like writing. I, I was an English major also as an undergrad. So was I. Um, yeah. So I, I enjoy writing and the whole process of, I think it's kind of artistic producing yeah. a paper. Um, and, and I think it's wonderful to have a job that's self-directed. Yeah. You know, nobody's telling you exactly what to do and you get to work on what you want to work on. Yeah. So I view it as a huge privilege to even have this type of job. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, I think I'm just kind of happy, mm -hmm. you know, doing my work. And and you have to have curiosity. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm motivated a lot by wanting to know the answer to some question. Like recently, mm -hmm. I've been working on like whether conditional cash transfers improve test scores, you know, because uh -huh. there was a lot of work showing that they improve school attendance, but we don't really know the effect on test scores. Right. You know, how much did that translate into learning? Yeah. And so I really want to know the answer, you yeah. know, and, and I would say you have to have a curiosity about the topics that you're working on. I always tell my students that you have to have some passion for the question that you're looking at because you're right. going to be looking at it for a long time. A and long time. Yeah. 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 So that they shouldn't just pick, you know, any topic. They should pick something that they really are interested in. Right. Sort um, of a time horizon kind of mindset. This is something I could see myself doing for a while because I'm going to have to do it for a while. Yeah. But right. I think some people don't have those. I mean, even my husband is not a totally self-directed type of person. I mean, he works at a just a regular company, you know, where they have projects and he works on their projects. But I don't think that he would enjoy a job where he just totally has to, yeah. you know, think himself about what things to work on. Yeah. I think some people are that way. They're more like entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. but I think of it more like self-employment. Yeah. yeah. It's a real practical self-employment though, because, you know, you can be super curious and passionate and, and want to know the answer to things, but not be able to publish at all. And you've been able to publish also, you you finish your papers, you fight till they're actually in print. And that's a that seems like it moves beyond uh, curiosity. It's almost more of like a, just kind of being conscientious or uh, just like, you know, I will complete my tasks. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I have some papers that never made it to print, um, but I think everybody has some projects that yeah. sort of, but I don't give up easily. That's for uh -huh. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, this Progressa project, this kind of getting back to this original comment I made, which is that when I just like, if I didn't associate you with structural work and labor, I would look at your, I would look at, at, a, at you topically, you know, and I would say, well, she's made such massive contributions to the design-based causal inference. You know, this is what the word I've been using lately is this thing I heard Card say. And so 
uh, matching and diff and diff and and an RDD and and then this, this these experiments. So I guess that would be just a good place to start to kind of walk through that, and then I'll just sort of maybe ask questions. You go, but how did you get how did you get involved with Progressa, and what can you tell us about it? Well, I got involved even before the experiment was done, um, and it, actually Jim Heckman <laughs> got me involved because they were they wanted to do this randomization in Mexico. It totally came from the Mexican government. I mean, they had some economists, Santiago Levy um, was there and they were implementing this you know, anti-poverty program, but they were skeptical that if you give people money, they might, because um, the program gives people money to send their kids to school. But that, you know, people always worry, well, poor people are gonna go out and spend the money on tobacco and, and alcohol and things like that. And so then they decided to do an experiment, you know, to see what they spend the money on and to see what they do. Um, and I think Jim Heckman, they originally asked him to, you know, advise them on doing the experiment, but I think he got sick or something um, mm. and then wasn't able to make the trip. And so then he suggested that I go. Wow. And so I went. So at the time when they did the randomization, actually, and and um, so I, I actually I think they had some randomization plan and and I it was kind of hard because I didn't speak Spanish, you know, and the statistician working on it only spoke Spanish, you know, but, yeah. but I think I actually changed the randomization plan. Really? They told me later, I kind of forgot about, but they said that I later helped them kind of fix what they were doing. Wow. Um, Why were they randomizing? Well, because, you know, there's, I think they just wanted to do the best possible to know you know, what the treatment effects were and there were economists working on the project. So how, um, how in that, so what year would that have been? That was 97. 97. So was randomization, you know, now you think about randomization, you know, it's just like in a developing country, you think of, of Esther DeFlow and Banerjee, and this is before all that. That was before so, all of that. Yeah. So, so how, how, um, widespread was it that an economist involved would say, yes, we need to randomize. And this is a great idea. I mean, is it something that, you know, I should just know that that's, it's always been that way with economists or. No, what? I, well, there were some big social experiments in the U S you know, yeah. that they randomized these job training right. programs like JTPA or NSW was before JTPA and yeah. um or the negative income tax experiments. There were some RCTs, but I don't think there were any like of such a big scale for sure. Like they randomized 506 villages. I mean, altogether there were like 50,000 families. It, it was a lot of people like participating in the experiment. So, so nobody had done anything like that. Was it but that, that really, it came from the Mexican government. I think Santiago Levy, was the person that really pushed for that. Huh. So what did what was the reaction that you got from the economics community when they be, when you began to describe such a large RCT in the results? I'm curious now about the early reaction to to results about conditional cash transfers and separately in with it being in an RCT. 
Well, so they hired, um, they wanted to have an external group doing the evaluation. So I helped at the stage of designing the RCT, but then if Pre was hired as like the external consultant, you know, they had a competitive bid. And then I also helped with the if Pre team um, evaluating the treatment effects, like with Susan Parker and Jerry Behrman. Um, we wrote some papers and like Paul Schultz also worked yeah. on, and I think Horatio Atanasio, and he was involved in a lot of, so they had a whole team and different parts, of, different teams were doing different outcomes. So I was on the education team looking at education outcomes. Another group was on the consumption team, you know, or Paul Gertler was on the health side. Mm. Um, so everybody was very excited about it. And the data seemed to be very high quality. I mean, they collected very rich data. Like, you know, a lot of RCTs, they only collect kind of the outcomes and which group you're in. Yeah. You know, and then then you're pretty limited in terms of what else you can do with the data. Yeah. But in, in this case, they had very detailed surveys and we actually worked on designing the surveys. There were teams that designed each survey module. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of excitement, actually. You know, and there's probably a Shokley production function for eight inputs multiplicative that creates a successful progressa. And you have to have all eight. Otherwise, it's a complete disaster, given how many moving parts it is. What, what's the secret? What's the secret for why this turned out to be such a successful experiment? like with it just having high quality data and well-designed and so forth. It has to be that it's easy uh, to get it wrong. I think the secret was they just had very good people working on it. It was a small team, actually. The Progressive team was not a huge team, but they were just very devoted to what they were doing, mm. you know, and, and I think they wanted to have a, a good anti-poverty program. Yeah. You know, because it was really helping the poorest individuals. And um, so I think there was just a lot of dedication and a lot of very smart people working on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then the the outside teams also, they tried to get the best people in all the different areas, like the leading researchers that had a lot of experience designing surveys. You know, so I think it was just putting together very good people to work on it. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. So you were you were saying that that you had all these different things and the the reaction from the community when you were well. So the results were pretty positive. You know, yeah. it really did increase education a lot. It had a lot of benefits. I mean, there was also a health component, and they document a lot of health benefits. Concerns about the consumption. You know, people thought people would like spend more money on alcohol or whatever, but it turned out they spend more money on like shoes for kids so right. that they could go to school and. Um, they spent more money on protein, like increasing protein consumption in their diet. Mm. Um, so the results were very positive. And so then the World Bank started to support these programs as well. Um, yeah. and, and then a lot of countries were, you know, impressed by the evidence and, and a lot of other countries adopted similar programs. So it started spreading to all different countries. And like Norbert Shady has a book, um, where he reviews, you know, different countries where similar programs were adopted. And it's now in 60 different countries, like all around the world, they have these types of programs. Yeah, yeah. So it was very influential. 
Yeah, I bet that was really meaningful to be a part of that. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the most important things that I worked on, actually. Wow. Yeah, because millions of people now participate in these types of programs. But you're still occasionally writing papers on Progressa, that's correct? Yeah, well, I mean, now I'm even working that the name changed over time. So now it, it, well, it was called Prospera. Um, it was called Opportunidades. So now we're, we're writing a paper looking at the test score outcomes. Yeah. Which we never had before, like administrative data on test scores. Do, do you feel like the science of physical randomization uh, is something that you you you've been really surprised by what you how you've grown as a as a scientist in terms of what you've learned about the science of physical experimentation? Or was it something that, you know, you you really I mean, I know you learned a lot about the economics of it, the economics of the CCT of Progressa. But do you feel like you've just also accumulated so much original human capital that you wouldn't have had about just experimentation? I, yeah, I I did have to just read some books about how you run. I did another, I designed the, I mean, Progressa, we did a simple randomization actually, because there were 506 villages. So we didn't, we just did simple treatment and control randomization. Um, without any sort of, you know, blocking or, um, but later I designed another experiment. We did this experiment in Mexican high schools where, where we didn't have as many units. And so then we actually did some blocking and, and Uh I had invest more in trying to figure out the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, Okay. 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 Um, uh, well, so so when I said all that stuff about reduced form structural, I was wondering if you could just also tell me doing a, a, a another word uh, association, when you hear someone say structural econometrics, what do you, what, what do you think when you hear those words? Like model, that it's model-based. Model-based. What does that mm-hmm. mean to you? That there's an economic model that's closely tied to the empirical work. I see. Okay. And so when you hear someone say reduced form econometrics, what do you, what do you hear? What does that make you think? So to be honest, I don't like to call it reduced form. Mm -hmm. So reduced form, when those words were first used, reduced form was reduced from a model. Like let's say the original model had alpha and beta. Yeah but the estimation was not able to recover alpha and beta. It could only recover the ratio alpha divided by beta. Right. That's a reduced form, like from the original model, like you were able to recover some combination of parameters, but not all the parameters from the model. Yeah. So reduced form normally was in reference to a model. Yeah. Right. Nowadays people use that language very casually, like, but I always think reduced form of what? Like, if you don't have a model, then how could what you're doing be called reduced form analysis? So I tend to call it non-structural analysis, you know, Um, but I know like people use that terminology very casually. Yeah. But I think the idea that it's a reduced form from a model has actually been kind of lost. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't make sense. Reduced form from what? Right, right. So when you, so there was this speech, you probably saw it, David Card gave this speech um, in 2014 at Michigan, and it's about the history of the model in empirical microeconomics. And he basically talks about 
three distinct uh, stages. One, he calls it the approximating model. And this was kind of like Becker or Menser, where you would have a, an economic model and then you might just run much simpler regressions, kind of like, you know, uh, regress education or re regress earnings on education. And then, mm -hmm. then you have what he calls the, um, the complete model. And then he's got what essentially sounds like the, the, the Princeton tradition of the um, focusing on physical treatment assignment and uh, but not without reference to the model. And, and I guess I was wondering what exactly from your bird's eye view makes this, these, this tension between structural, structural econometrics and uh, non-structural approaches, what is, first of all, do you, do you ever sense that there is methodological disagreements and between these two groups and, and, and why are they there? And what's your just overall sense of, of what is going on? So to be honest, in my mind, there is not, I agree with you that there are disagreements, but, but I actually don't think of them as competing approaches at all. You know, like I have nothing against a causal effects analysis. Um, I just think that, you know, learning, learning about existing treatments is only one of many things that economists are interested in doing. Right. You know, ideally you would like to be able to design a program before you implement it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's very expensive to just say, oh, I'll try this program without having any idea what the effects will be. Right. You know, and, and then if you don't like the effects, have to implement a different program. You know, yeah. we need to be able to forecast the effects of programs before we put them in place. And then we need to be able to optimally choose parameters of the program like you may be interested in 10 different versions of the program. You cannot implement all 10 of them. You know, you need to be able to learn about varying things like program design parameters yeah. without actually implementing that version. Right. You know, so the questions that you can answer with structural work are much different from the questions that are answered in causal analysis. So like if I, if all I wanted to know is a treatment effect for a treatment that was implemented? Yeah. There's no problem with doing RCT. You know, I think RCT would be the best. If you don't have an RCT, you know, or, or maybe there are probably, you know, RCTs in economics, they go wrong a lot of times because you can't force people to do things and people don't respond to your survey. And, you know, it's not like an RCD, RCT in biology where you have mice and you can fully control what they're doing. Yeah. You know, people don't always comply with what you want them to do. Like they don't take the treatment. They don't, they don't respond to your survey. And so a lot of times you're left with sort of non-experimental data anyways. Right. You know, but if I was interested only in a treatment effect, yeah. um, I would be very you know, comfortable with using any of those methods, like difference and difference. I'm working on project now. It's like difference and difference RD analysis. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's only one part of our toolkit. Yeah. You know, the structural analysis, 
lets you answer so many more different questions. Yeah. So if I, you know, and it, in the early literature, let's say when they were developing discrete choice analysis, uh -huh. like Dan McFadden, he, he helped them predict the demand for the BART subway in San Francisco, you know, before they built the subway. Right. You know, like when you do transportation analysis, you cannot build a subway and then say, oh, I don't want it here. I'm going to move it somewhere else. Like you have to, you know, forecast what will the demand be if I put it here? Yeah. You know, yeah. and and in marketing analysis, they forecast the demand for new goods all the time. So there's so many questions that economists would like to be able to answer or extrapolating programs to new populations mm -hmm. or, or maybe seeing what's the effect of a program if it's in place for 10 years, you can't normally run an experiment for 10 years. Right. You know, usually experiments are kind of short term. Can, um, so can, I just feel like that's only part of our toolkit. So like yeah. when I teach, I teach, I teach all those methods, you know, I do program evaluation and I teach a lot of those like diff and diff and RD and matching and RCTs, how you design RCTs. But then I also teach how to use a model to design a program, to evaluate variations of program parameters, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to implement the models, you need to have good data, you yeah. know, cause you're trying to specify the choice sets and the constraints that people face, you know, so a lot of times in RCTs, they don't collect very good data. Like they'll just collect the outcome variable and who got treated. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're very limited, like what you can learn. So the, the nice thing about the progressive experiment, they actually collected a lot of survey data. Uh -huh. so you could do the modeling, plus you could do the, the whatever, reduced form type analysis. Well, so look, can you give me an ex hypothetical example about like two counterfactuals, one where a person approached an important question uh, and did it in a non-structural way, causal inference stuff, and then one where they approached it in this holistic way. What exactly is different between these two bet, you know, best case scenarios? What, what additional insights that are valuable uh, to science and to the policymaker did I get from that specific structural approach that the other person just simply doesn't have? Well, like let's say with Progressa, they were looking at effects on school enrollment in, in educational achievement. So the RCT was pretty well-designed RCT and it found an increase 0.6 years of education on average, okay? But that was for the schedule, the subsidy schedule that they implemented, you know? And so let's say you wanna know, well, what if they had done the, the subsidies for school attendance because they had lower subsidies in primary school, higher subsidies, you know, after grade six, girls had a higher subsidy than boys. So let's say I wanted to know what if they had a different subsidy schedule, mm -hmm. you know? So for example, most kids go to primary school anyways. So that was almost just a transfer. And so you might think, well, what if we increased the subsidy in the higher grades and took away the subsidy in the lower grades? Mm -hmm. So that would be, the same cost, but a different program design, mm -hmm. you know? So that question, like Ken Wolpen and I wrote a paper where, where we did that. We just varied the design parameters and actually um, 
Costas Maguire and Horacio Atanasio and Ana Santiago, they also wrote a paper where they varied sim in similar ways. It was a different model, but they also um, varied the design parameters, looking at like taking away the early subsidies and transferring that money to the later grades. So if a person doesn't want to use a model and just wants to do you know, treatment effects, they can't even answer that question. Right. Like they don't have the tools to do it because there's no structure, you know? Yeah, right. So right. I, that's why, like maybe the RCT is a better way to say what's the effect of the existing program because yeah. you're not really making any assumptions, you know, other than that you have a good experiment. So structure yeah. is starts to uh, move us away from this internally valid uh, estimation to something that might be more generalizable. Yeah, exactly. Just to learn more. To learn so, more. I mean, Ken Wolpe and I wrote this recent paper that's forthcoming in JEL, and it's it's basically how you can combine RCT analysis with structural modeling so that you can learn more from experiments. Yeah, yeah. I, I, to me, it seems the reduced form analysis is not ambitious enough uh -huh. because it's sort of giving up on lots of questions that are of interest. Right. You know, right. like I recently wrote a paper about pension programs in Chile, where yeah. we analyze those pension reform, you know, but that we use the model. So pension is kind of a dynamic thing, you know, because it's savings over your whole lifetime. And but we analyze changes to the existing pension system design. Mm -hmm. You know, would there be a better way that the government could design their pension program? Yeah. So there's like this whole range of questions that I think are very interesting that you cannot answer with just this causal analysis. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I don't understand the rivalry because it's not like there's a competing, you know, the only way that they compete is if you wanna say, what's the effect of this treatment? Mm -hmm. You know, then I might actually prefer the causal analysis if, if it makes fewer assumptions. But then there's a whole range of questions that they can't answer. Right. So, so that's why I feel like you need both. Yeah. And when I teach my graduate econometrics classes, I try to give students the tools to be able to do both sorts of analysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what's the skill set that's missing at large, in your opinion, you know, for people that 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 have a fairly, you know, uh, they're they're like methodologically sophisticated on this causal approach, but they have zero background in in uh, in um, structural structural. What 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 are the the key fundamental skills that are missing, and and where do they get them? Well, I think a major barrier has been that you know to program models, you can't. There's no built-in data command, you know. Like it's not that easy to just use existing software. Right. So if I want to program a model, I normally program it in Fortran. Right. Or you could, you know, you actually have to know some programming to be able to implement the models. Yeah. Because each model is somewhat different. Yeah. So there's yeah. not a lot of built-in. So I think that's a big barrier because things that are easier to implement are yeah. more quickly totally. adopted. Totally. Yeah. You know, and then of course there is disagreement about which is the best model. You know, um, and I think it's still sort of in its infancy because when these models were first developed in the mid 80s, mm -hmm. you know, programming was just kind of starting that people had their own computers and 
Um, so at first it was very tough to implement any of the models because the computers were not good enough. Yeah. Nowadays, the computers, you know, have gotten so much better and we have parallel processing, parallel mm -hmm. optimizers. So you can actually implement very sophisticated models, mm -hmm. but you have to kind of know how to program the models. So it's but, both, uh, there's, there's a, a programming skill and it's not yeah. just the programming of knowing how to program in R or something or programming state. It's a particular kind of, you know, uh, human capital that's like Fortran. Well, you could do it in R. It's just R might not be fast enough. It depends what kind of model. Like if you had a dynamic model, I mean, first of all, the models, you have to understand like how it works, how you solve the models. There are different techniques. Yeah. But, but you know, many of our grad students do learn it. So yeah. I don't think it's like insurmountable. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen tons of students learn it and do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does require some, you know, dedication to learn it. Yeah. And I would say a lot of schools don't have a lot of structural people teaching the material. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's why the people that do structural work normally learned it from somebody. Yeah. And I learned it mainly from Ken Wolpen, because mm -hmm. when I was a grad student, I didn't do a lot of structural work. Like even though Heckman does that kind of work, but the things that I worked on with him were not very structural. Um so that's why I learned more causal analysis with him. But then Ken Wolpen is very structural. Um, and so I learned a lot of those techniques from him. Yeah. I learned a lot after as yeah. an assistant professor working uh -huh. with him. I see. Yeah. Well, I have one last question uh, because it's it's at the top of the hour. So I'm going to end with another uh, a little, little playful exercise. I want you to imagine there's a burning building. And inside the building is everything we know about uh, economics and econometrics, uh, everything we know about econometrics and everything we know about dancing. <laughs> and you can only retrieve one of these books. Which one are you going to retrieve and why? The, the econometrics. You're going to take the econometrics? Okay. How come? Actually, most of the things about dancing, I don't think it's written down. Yeah. A lot of it seems to be you know, just people, coach, the way people learn dancing, they have these expert coaches uh, that fly around. It's actually really hard to describe it in writing. Uh-huh, you know, yeah. Uh, it's an apprentice, like, world, like an apprenticing kind of model. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, so it's, so the, the whatever book was in that building wasn't probably any good. No, I mean, dancing is just my hobby. I, I, I'm very devoted to economics. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is really nice to, to talk to you. And uh, this was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from our conversation. Okay. Well, hopefully people will not view these different methodologies as rival because I don't view them as rival at all, actually. So yeah. I view them as complementary. Yeah. Well, I'll be on my, uh, my sub stack. I'll post the, the forthcoming JL with you and Kent, Dr. Wolpen so that people can uh, read it. When is that coming out? Well, I mean, I thought it would already be out. So because it was accepted already a couple of years ago. So, so it's, I don't know. They must have a long backlog. It's on your website? Um, I, I don't know if it's on my website. I'd have to look. My website okay. is not always the most up to date. Okay. All right. Well, it was nice to talk to you, talk, talk to you, Petra. Okay. Good to talk to you, Scott. Thank you.